good afternoon. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 2 of Straight Talking English. I am your host, Catherine, a qualified teacher, talking you through all of the GCSE Literature Syllabus texts one at a time. And we are continuing our 19th century journey with a little bit of Jekyll and Hyde. As ever, str 8 Talk English on Twitter, straighttalkingenglish.com, and the focus today is going to be on Robert Louis Stevenson's life because limey did he have a life so he described himself as born 1850 at Edinburgh pure scotch blood descended from the scotch lighthouse engineers three generations himself educated for the family profession but this marrow of the family was worked out and he declined into a man of letters gloomy sod isn't he much like his parents and later his wife Lewis as he was commonly known or to his dad Baron Broadnose because of his massive nose was an extreme hypochondriac on top of having several legitimate illnesses frequently while his parents were off taking various dodgy Victorian cures he was left alone in care of his nanny named Cummy C-U-M-M-I-E if I was teaching this in front of a class I would not mention that the reason this is notable is because in Stevenson's life story this is the first point at which he considered himself to be leading a double life at the age of six he said I would not only lie awake to weep for Jesus which I have done many a time but I would fear to trust myself to slumber lest I was not accepted and should slip ere I woke into eternal ruin I remember repeatedly waking up from a dream of hell clinging to the horizontal bar of the bed with my knees and chin together my soul shaken my body convulsed with agony it is not a pleasant subject I piped and snivelled over the bible with an earnestness which had been talked into me i would say nothing without adding if i am spared as though to disarm fate with a show of a show of submission and some of this feeling still remains upon me in my 30th year part of this thing comes from the fact that his nanny was very strongly calvinist of the like fire and brimstone like those infomercials running 24 7 on some channels style in any calvinist listening to this please 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 correct me but i am under the impression that if you're a calvinist you believe in the elect which means there is a certain group of people who are predestined by god to go to heaven so you're either in or you're out you're good or you're bad we're already getting this duality being worked in this sense of two sides of his one personality continued when he went to university his father thomas simultaneously hated school and wanted Lewis to attend university and do really well. He was enrolled in an engineering course, but Lewis was determined to become a writer, and the amount of work he had to put in to lead what his biographer called having to live two lives in tandem. For a while, he felt the desire for self-improvement, telling his cousin that, I am entering a profession which must engross the strength of my powers and to which I shall try and devote my energies. What I should prefer would be to search dying people in lowly parts of the town and help them but I cannot trust myself in such places I told you my weak point before and you will understand me but the reason he said he couldn't trust himself in these low places was because he basically was the most exciting kind of hipster student and 
and it's actually fab. By the time he turned 20, he was fully off the rails. He basically didn't even go to lectures. Like he'd show up and then just like walk out. Um, he said that where he chose to work, so normally I love working in the Blackbird bakeries because it smells like fresh bread and they do fresh orange juice. He would pick this old pub um, frequented by sailors, criminals, and what he called the lowest order of prostitutes. But it's weird, he started thinking when he was talking about talking to these sex workers, he actually realised that you could lead a double life. He met one of the sex workers like out and about, not at work, and said she was perfectly self-respecting and I had certainly small fatuity at the period. But it never occurred to me that she thought of me except in the way of business. And now I remember her attempts to awaken my jealousy being very simple. I took at the time for gospel. Like his university life, like everybody who's been to uni has these stories of crazy student antics. Like when my mate got accepted onto his PhD, he climbed onto the roof of a doctor's surgery and when the security guards tried to take him off the roof, he shouted, I'm doing a PhD, you don't have a PhD, you can't take me off this roof. I mean, I, I don't think I actually had that many hijinks. Um, I tried to sleep in my workplace uh, when I was drunk quite a few times and like would just randomly, randomly sleep, just be like, can't, can't pick me out, I'm sleeping. Oh, I didn't actually do that many hijinks, but Lewis's were intense. So like he'd sit around in like Greyfriars Cemetery look trying to pick up hash and then most of the time he couldn't get any hash and would just sort of sit there looking a little bit sad. He got put on a work placement for engineering and decided to turn up in his work placement in a velvet tuxedo. He did a year abroad in France and he realised the day before the exam it would be written in French and he couldn't write French so he stayed up all night with a dictionary trying to teach himself French then gave up. He could speak it by the way. He went into the exam, told the examiner all the law textbooks were trash. I will never, uh, they're not even worth bothering with but luckily the uh, the examiner thought that it was decent. So yeah go on then and for some reason that meant he graduated. Um, uh, he tried to give another presentation, but the examiner didn't actually recognise him since he'd never been to any classes. He got a part-time job at the Carpenters, but lost it because he couldn't actually tell the different types of wood apart. He liked to prank his friends by saying grace for a really, really long time before dinner every day until the food went cold. Like, I'd be ready to smack him at that point. Um, started a fight with a group of coal miners because they were wearing boots on a Sunday. He decided in a philosophical moment to invent a term called jink. Jink means doing the weirdest thing you can possibly think of and finding it hilarious. So he'd be like, it's jink day, and then just walk around being strange. He, again, I feel like this prank has um, aged a little bit. So at this point, if you went to visit your friend and they were out, because there's no phones, you'd leave like a business card, it's called a calling card with your name on it saying, I don't know, like Lewis tried to visit you at 10 a.m he wants to talk to you. He got a bunch printed up called, um, that were from someone called Mr. Libble, L-I-B-B-L-E, and he would be like, Mr. Libble is here, and lead people like trying to find who Mr. Libble was and worry them. Problem is him and his cousin got a name for themselves. These pranks couldn't carry on that long because they went into a shop and it was, oh, it's the 
Stevenson's. I'm not listening to you. But ultimately, because he was such a maverick, such like a renegade, he wanted to be as weird as conceivably possible. The Velvet Tuxedo would be teamed with a beautiful straw hat. And the opium was delicious. He managed to find himself some good opium. But he got this weird, like, thing about I'm a different person in my dreams. Dream me and real life me are different. And he wrote, in his dream life, he passed a long day in the surgical theatre, his heart in his mouth, his teeth on edge, seeing monstrous malformations and the abhorred dexterity of surgeons. In the heavy, rainy, foggy evening, he came forth into the South Bridge, turned up the High Street, entered the door of the tall land, at the top of which he was supposed to lodge. All night long in his wet clothes, he climbed the stairs, stair after stair in an endless series, every second flight a flaring lamp with a reflector. All night long, he brushed by a single persons passing downward, beggarly women of the street, great weary muddy labourers, poor scarecrows of men, pale parodies of women, but all drowsy and weary like himself, and all single and all brushing against him as they passed. In the end, out of a northern window, he would see day beginning to whiten over the firth, give up the ascent, turn to descend and in a breath be back again upon the streets in his wet clothes, in the wet haggard dawn, trudging to another day of monstrosity and operations. Like, modern life is so boring. His hard-working dad was absolutely appalled by his bohemian lifestyle. And a feature of their relationship was constant fighting. One notable fight was about evolution. An idea that interested Louis enough for it to worm its way into Jekyll and Hyde. I'm coming back to this when I talk a little bit more about Hyde. It might be next episode, I can't remember. I'm, I'm, I can't remember, I've got my plan in front of me. Um, but this was a big fight. In 1859, the naturalist Charles... Darwin published The Origin of Species in which he argued natural selection meant that individuals in each species were more likely to survive and reproduce, eventually leading to the species evolving. Thomas Stevenson, Lewis, Lewis's father, did not agree with him at all and argued that if man has been raised from the gorilla as is hinted at by the new school of naturalists how comes it to pass the dot although resembling man so little physically should be much more than the gorilla akin to him in all his noble a feeling nobler feelings and affection he also really loved this pamphlet that said men of literature and science may therefore well pause ere they lift their pen to write a word which tends to shake the faith of others how terrible will it be to such an author while toiling a alone through the dark valley of the shadow of death, should conscience remind him, when thus entering the dark portals of the tomb, of the pernicious legacy he has left to mankind. Well, I mean, it's a problem. When Lewis actually called his dad out on this, his dad, like, just put him down. He contradicted him in public. And his dad was like, oh, you have evolution on the brain. This is interesting because other than this, their main fight was when Louis, Louis, I keep calling him Louis. No, it's pronounced Louis, L-E-W-I-S. He just changed the spelling to make it French, basically, to be more of a hipster. When he came out as an atheist, that was like the biggest deal. His parents were disgusted. He is going to hell, he has renounced God. And it was part of this transitional period at university where he he basically was dropping out doing nothing. He wanted to be a preacher at the start of it, but three years later, he had completely lost his faith. After dropping in and out and in and out of university, he sort of passed 
master law degree, sort of. He only ever took two cases. His parents began to control him very much by trying to keep him under lock and key. Mostly because of this weird hypochondria they all had, but also because, let's face it, they let him go to uni and then he just smoked opium in a cemetery for like three years. He got out of this by getting a doctor's note which said specifically, Louis has to go on holiday on his own to escape. And they were like, oh yes, of course, doctor, that's great. Yes, clearly. He mumbled round Paris for a bit and met the woman that would change his life, Miss Fanny Osborne. She was described as, she may seem like a lost princess, stray daughter of the Incas, come only to shabby queenhood in Bohemia by right of her civilised blood and her royal birth. Before New World eyes, looking from nearer into barbarism, there is none of the glamour which sees romance and poetry in simple dusky skins, wild free motions and turbulent lives, so that real unromantic barrenness and poverty of nature is as visible to them in a deposed daughter of the Incas or Mexican dancer as in the pale factory girl who toils and spins and knows nothing else. She was not considered a looker. She was a little bit married to someone else and in fact she told her husband that she was doing an art class in Paris for the summer. She had three children, one of whom had died the week before she met Louis, but he decided she is the woman for him. She was He was instantly transfixed by her. Problem is she was not that impressed about him when she met him. She wrote in a letter, oh he was right about his cousin whom I like very much and who is the wittiest man I ever met. Only I do wish he wouldn't burst into tears in such an unexpected way. It's so embarrassing. Well, <laughs> to be fair, if that's the first impression you have of your life partner if they cry so much. I mean, I've got some questions. I always have some questions. After her summer, she went back to America to try and make things work with her husband. But all Lewis wanted to do was be alone. He bought a sleeping bag, a donkey, and spent the summer as a homeless wanderer in the south of France. This trip brought on a relapse of some of his actual illnesses. We don't actually know what Lewis suffered from. Syphilis is quite likely. It's a sexually transmitted disease, very difficult to cure and considered quite shameful because the reputation was that you got it from sleeping with sex workers. By this point in history, medical knowledge had reached far beyond where Friar Lawrence was in season two. Observation was still the best diagnostic tool, but innovations like the stethoscope, microscope, thermometer enabled more exciting discoveries like anesthesia or germ. The reason why we think Lewis might have syphilis is because in his notes he would say that he was obsessed with going to get this one prescription and the description he gives of it makes it sound like it's mercury pills which are a allegedly effective treatment against syphilis but being exposed to mercury for long periods of time can make you even iller is not great <laughs> when fanny didn't return his letter he decided to move to america to be with her alas she did not return his love when he eventually found her he literally wandered off in the woods to die he decided i shall lie down in this forest until a bear eats me two days later a wandering shepherd found him for a while this delightful shepherd just um, nursed him for like two weeks when he saw this scraggy ill looking Scotsman and Lewis got a bit confused in his dehydration delirium and kind of thought it was God sent to him and in the form of a sheep to save him but when Fanny heard about this when he like stumbled out of the woods she was moved and they got married their first home together was in an abandoned mining shack in a mine 
like I'm like really really it was called Silverado and they lived in this shack with no running water and it was all very bohemian and romantic I mean I'm just saying if my partner decided that he wanted to invite me to live in a mining shack I'm I'm really gonna say no like I need wi-fi I need electricity but you're not surprised to hear that Lewis's health took a downturn again and his dad was bankrolling him throughout this period like reluctantly his dad would say like no more money for you and then like he'd half die or he'd write a sad letter and his dad would bankroll him again and they headed off to Switzerland his doctor suspected he had TB which has this like weird romantic reputation romantic with a big R since that's what Shelley died of this like pale consumptive hero just lying there forever so Stevenson was absolutely delighted uh, it was a beautiful celebrity illness he absolutely hated the hospital he was in because it was full of sick people and they didn't let him chain smoke and he was like well what's the point of being a romantic hero when I'm around all these sick people but he met someone very interesting he met a guy called John Simmons who he got quite close to Lewis and he revealed that he was a closeted gay guy he was married with children but he was very much closeted and dealing with his own homosexuality. We know this because he wrote an anonymous account of his friend who was struggling with his feelings, which he had to bury. It was this idea of harboring a demon and giving himself the love of the impossible. And it's, you know, it is quite romantic. It's, you know, it is the love that cannot speak its name. And again, we're going to come back to this. I've been reading up on Oscar Wilde Ryle, and it is a fantastic subsection of history that I'm really happy to go into with you. Louis hadn't really heard much about homosexuality before now. He found it to be a strange idea and in his bohemian way and loving to mess with people through the principle of a jink, he decided to go around and pretend to be gay for two weeks. The problem is he didn't really understand what that involved and he was under the impression that if you had feelings for the same gender you could not essentially tighten the muscles in your arms so he would walk around flailing his arms like an octopus under the impression that that's what gay people did. Again, I kind of would love to see this, is someone just like intensely wiggling their arms and being like, oh, can't you tell I'm gay? And I'm like, no, 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 dude, like, are you doing a dance or something? But whatever. So this friendship he had with Simmons was, some people argue, very influential in the writing of Jekyll and Hyde. The idea that Jekyll is gay and hiding his sexuality is not that controversial an idea because it kind of fits a lot of what is said. But Simmons said, the book, when viewed as an allegory, touches one too closely and Simmons strongly felt it was actually about him. Well let's fast forward in time, 1886. By now the Stevensons are doing the one thing no one would ever expect them to do, settling down into middle class suburban life. But one day, as Fanny later related, Louis wrote Jekyll and Hyde with great rapidity on the lines of his dream. In the small hours of one morning I was wakened by cries of horror from him. I, thinking he had a nightmare, waked him. He said angrily, why did you wake me? I was dreaming a fine bogey tale. I'd waked him at the first transformation scene. He'd had in his mind an idea of a double life story, but it was not the same as the dream. He asked me as usual to make no criticisms until the first draft was done, as he didn't like to 
get tired by discussing my proposed changes in his work, it was the custom that I felt I should put my criticisms in writing. In this tale, I felt and still feel he was hampered by his dream. The powder, which I thought might be changed, he could eliminate because he saw it so plainly in the dream. In the original story, he had Jekyll bad all through and working for the high change only as a disguise. I wrote pages of criticism, pointing out that he had here a great moral allegory that the dream was obscuring. I didn't like the opening, which was confused, again the dream, and proposed that Hyde should run over the child, showing he was an evil force without humanity. I left my paper with Lewis, who was in his bedroom writing in bed. After quite a long interval, his bell rang for me, and Lloyd and I went upstairs. As I entered the door, Louis pointed with a dr long dramatic finger, you know, to a pile of ashes on the hearth of the fireplace, saying that I was right, and there was all the tale. I nearly fainted away with misery and horror when it was all gone. He was already hard at work at the new version, which was finished in a few days more. I wanted to make further objections concerning the powder, but after that pile of ashes, I had not the courage. The stepson's version has him actually throwing the paper dramatically into the fire, shouting, I shall burn it, which I do really enjoy a lot more. But Lewis's version of uh, what happens is far more practical. He said, I was very hard up for money, and I felt that I had to do something. I thought and thought and tried hard to find a subject to write about. At night I dreamed the story, not precisely as it's written, for of course there are always stupidities in dreams, but practically it came to me as a gift and what makes it appear more odd is that I'm quite in the habit of dreaming stories. I go on making them while I sleep, quite as hard apparently as when I'm awake. They sometimes come to me in the form of nightmares and so far they make me cry out loud but I'm never deceived by them. Even when fast asleep I know that it is I who am inventing and when I cry out it is with gratification to know the story is so good. For instance, all I dreamed about Dr. Jekyll was that one man was being pressed into a cabinet when he swallowed a drug and changed into another being. I awoke and said at once that I'd been the missing link for which I'd been looking so long. And before I again went to sleep, almost every detail of the story as it stands was clear to me. Of course, writing it was another thing. Ultimately, he said I'd been long trying to write a story on the subject to find a body, a vehicle for that strong sense of man's double being, which must at times come in and overwhelm the mind of every thinking creature. Jekyll and Hyde was a huge success. One reviewer went as far as to say, the double personality does not, in Stevenson's romance, take the form of a personified conscience, the doppelganger of the sing sinner, a double like his own double which Goethe is fabled to have seen. No, the separable self, in this strange case, with its unlikeness to its master, with its hideous caprices, appalling vitality, terrible power of growth and increase, is to our thinking a notion as novel as it is terrific. We would welcome a spectre, a ghoul, or even a vampire gladly rather than meet Mr. Hyde. And honestly, I don't really find it that scary. <laughs> Simmons again, just he hated it. He said it's indeed a dreadful book, most dreadful because of a certain moral callousness, a want of sympathy, a shutting out of hope. Most of us at some epoch of our lives have been on the verge of developing a Mr. Hyde. Is it unsuitable for fiction? Is it about deviant sexuality? I mean, this is nearly, this is nearly the time of the Ripper murders. The horrors are everywhere. Do, do, do. 
Oh my god, so drama. Within six months of the fine bogey tale that Lewis dreamed up being published, 40,000 copies had been sold in the UK and an amazing 250,000 copies were sold in North America and pirated. But whatever. Breaches used it as the basis of sermons. It was rumoured the Queen herself had a copy. His biographer, writing in 1901, concluded that its success was probably due to the moral instincts of the public and to any conscious perception of the merits of art. It was read by those who had never read fiction, it was quoted in pulpits, and made the subject of leading articles in religious papers. It was, in other words, an instant classic. Fame did not agree with Lewis and his eccentric, wandering lifestyle. After another relapse of what he decided was TB and the doctors were like, there's literally nothing wrong with you. He moved to a log cabin with no heat and no and no anything really in the middle of the Colorado winter. He absolutely loved it and he had his 60 something mother with him at this time and after that there was a bit of an intervention. He moved back to France then back to England, then decided that Europe was too much for him and moved to Samoa in the South Pacific. His family and their helpers cleared room for a plantation, built a beautiful home. For the rest of his life, he would basically just write letters at random to people in England. He lost touch with a lot of his friends because he basically just didn't tell them where he was going and then would drop off the grid for like six months and would be like, lol, I'm in Hawaii. But he just write these letters that's like, did you know that racism is bad? Did you know? I saw a sailor being mean the other day. What are you going to do about it? And then people in England would just be like, okay, right, Lewis. After a lifetime of health scares and generally being convinced he's ill, he died quite suddenly and quite young. He got a brain hemorrhage very peacefully at home, surrounded by his stepdaughter, his wife, his mum and various other hangers-on. That is where we have to leave Lewis, unfortunately. He is buried in Samoa. You can visit his house now. But he embodied the spirit of Jekyll and Hyde, the spirit of doubles. And he said himself, it's very likely that Jekyll answered to the name of Stevenson. He lived a tremendous life, the most bohemian, ridiculous, uncon unconventional, deliberately unconventional, conventional lifestyle. I did fall in love with him a little bit while I was reading this by the way. I like deeply wanted to meet this strange manic bohemian dude. Uh, the book that I've based a lot of my research on for today's episode is called Myself and the Other Fellow by Claire Harmon and it's a really really fab read. I tremendously recommend it. I've had to cut out so many weird things that he did or I would be here all day. But that is it. That that is Lewis's life. He is a fantastic, fantastic character from history. As I said, I do love him a little bit. It's a bit awkward. But he has been dead for about 150 years, so my boyfriend doesn't really have any competition. Coming up next week, well, next episode, will be the plot of Jekyll and Hyde to make sure we are all totally clear on what actually happens. And then we'll be moving on to a little bit of characters and a little bit of analysis. As ever, straighttalkingenglish.com. We are on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Castbox, Stitcher. I think that's it. I've, I've signed up to a lot of things. Please get people following. Just because the GCSE lit exams are over does not mean for you younglings that they're not going to come up again next year. Have a lovely, lovely, lovely week. Keep following. Tweet me if you've got any questions. And I will speak to you very, very soon.